In a stressful election year, we know that a good show, movie, or book can feel like a sacred thing. At Pop Culture Happy Hour, we believe pop culture can be good for you. So we're here four days a week to bring you a book, movie, or show recommendation to put you in high spirits. For a dose of old-fashioned pop culture therapy, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast only from NPR. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Actor Courtney B. Vance's decades-long career spans across stage, film, and television. But when he was a young actor in the 90s on Broadway, he received a call from his mother that would tear his world apart. His father was dead, she said, by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Years later, Vance's godson, a young promising college student, would succumb to the same fate— What transpired for Vance after these devastating losses has now become a lifetime of peeling back the layers of not only his father's pain, but his own struggles, too, as a black man in America. In a new book, The Invisible Ache, Courtney B. Vance and psychologist Dr. Robin Smith explore the trauma unique to black men and boys and what they say is an urgent need to change the conversation about mental health. In the decades since Vance's father died, rates of suicide and depression among black men and boys have steadily risen to alarming rates. Courtney B. Vance is an award-winning actor, known for his roles in The Hunt for Red October, The Preacher's Wife, FX's The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and HBO's Lovecraft Country. Dr. Robin L. Smith is a licensed psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, and talk show host. She's known for her regular appearances as the on-air therapist for The Oprah Winfrey Show. Dr. Robin Smith and Courtney B. Vance, welcome to Fresh Air. Our pleasure. Thank you so much, Tanya. Well, both of you, thank you for writing this book. And Courtney, I want to say I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your father and your godson. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was just so struck reading your book right from the very start. You say that your dad suffered in silence. And that was not only devastating to learn, I I know, I'm sure, but in many ways, it also felt familiar to you. Well, you know, I didn't know him that well. He was at every event that uh, I was was in. I was three-sport, all-state at Detroit Country Day. I did, was in every club, and and somehow he and my mom were were there, holding down their, their jobs, each of them. Him at the uh, Chrysler Benefits uh, Department and my mother, uh, librarian for 35 years, Detroit, Detroit Public Libraries. But, um, you know, do we ever know our parents, you know, when mm. we're, before we come out of the house? I'd, and I just knew that uh, um, I was loved. Yeah. Uh, there was no, I came out of that house not knowing, you know, them as well. It was like my children kind of know us, but they don't. You know, you begin to grow into knowing your parents as you grow as a a young adult. So um, I just knew he was he was my hero. And yeah. uh, he was the smartest man in the room and uh, was able to uh, talk on any topic, which was very intimidating to me. Hmm. Um, it was a generational thing, too, of not knowing your parents. But hmm. then this added layer of really what the name of the book is called, this invisible ache. He did not speak about his pain, the turmoil that he was going through. And Dr. Robin, I heard you say that this title 
is like permission. It's like a permission slip for black men to acknowledge something that society doesn't really open up space for. Can you say more about that? Yes. You know, we hear the old adage that silence is golden. We often don't hear the times in which silence is deadly uh, because there is so much moving in the inner world of a person. And if they feel isolated, if they feel that there is no safe place to explore and express uh, what's going on inside, that manifests in lots of ways. And one of those could be um, suicidal thoughts. It could be thoughts that life is too much. And if you're living in that silence and isolation by yourself, it can take you to very uh, dark and uh, scary places. The other thing I just want to point out, when Courtney just shared about his parents and his father being his hero, his father is still his hero. Uh, His father did not lose his stature because he died by suicide. And I think it's really important for us to know that when we understand that someone had a struggle that we didn't know anything about, that we don't need to punish them or ourselves for the mystery of what was unknown. I mean, what you're saying here is an important distinction that I don't think we often talk about, and that's the shame around suicide, because it's almost like a moral failing that we have put on it. I think you have changed the language, even in the way that Courtney talks about it. Before you all got together, he was saying committed suicide. And you said, well, that language, we need to rethink that. Um, In that, though, comes what you're saying there of his father still being his hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and because committed suicide is like a crime. Mm. Suicide is not a crime. It's an act of desperation. It's an act of running out of steam and hope. Uh, We talk about that hope is an acronym that we use for hold on, pain ends. But Tanya, if I don't know that the pain is going to end, if I think whether I am a young black boy or an older black man, that there's no way out except death to bring relief and release. Um, The truth of the matter is that's a prison of a different kind. And so it's the shame is so um, misdirected. Yes, thank you. It's misdirected. When we have a worldwide situation like we did, I mean, that's what exacerbated this discussion and this pandemic of uh, suicide, especially with the young people and the children, as Dr. Robin will talk about, but we have to elevate our abilities and our need to, because otherwise, if we're going to shame the individual, we need to shame the culture mm-hmm. um, that, that allows it to, uh, when the entire world shuts down because of something, do you, do you not think there's going to be a residual effect to, to on the entire world 
and especially the young people that when you couldn't have a graduation, when you couldn't go to, you know, only 10 people would go to funerals and weddings and the emotional, spiritual, and psychological effect of that needs to be discussed. Yes. And you can't just go, oh, well, business as usual, let's go on. You just have to deal with it. And the repercussions of that is where we are now with the epidemic with with uh, suicide. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I bet so many men are listening to this and saying to themselves, yep, this this all sounds right. This sounds very familiar. But Dr. Robin, what are some of the distinctions that set black men and their pain apart? What do the stats tell us? Well, that black boys and black men, the rate of suicide is increasing. It's not only that black boys and men are dying at a higher rate. The rate is accelerating faster than any other group in the United States. And so we have to ask, what is why? it? Yes, yeah. we have to ask why and what is it and how is there systemic uh, realities inside of that number that black children, we're not just talking about teenagers or you know, adolescents and young adults, we're talking about black children are dying by suicide at a higher rate than any other group. Under 12 years old. Absolutely, under 12. We've got 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds who have taken their life. And people will ask, how much does social media have to do with that? But what is bigger is, as Courtney just said, it's the culture that is fostering this kind of isolation. You know, we've heard the Surgeon General talk about loneliness And that he's thinking about, because of the research, actually having loneliness as a public health emergency. emergency. So if we then put race and racism with isolation and loneliness, surely we understand that black boys and black men are up against historical trauma as well as current-day trauma. You know, I can't help but think, though, that holding space for Black men is also important in the scope of this very conversation because of this platform that we're on, on public radio right now, which is a very white space, and we're talking about a very Black topic. Mm -hmm. Some people might be listening right now and thinking, why is this important to me? Dr. Robin, what, what do you say to that? I love that question. What does this have to do with me, you know, black boys and black men? The ache that lives deeply embedded in black boys and men is actually in every life. And it shows itself differently when one has been pushed to the margins. But you want to care about someone else, because when it is your turn to need the care, to need the compassion, to need someone to mirror back the soul murder that happened to you. We're talking about the ache um, about black men and young boys, but the ache was, uh, we we have to go back to slavery and how 
we're all interconnected through that and that we eventually you're going we're going to have to deal with each other and so we're we're talking about these aches but my ache is your ache yeah you know, if I'm aching, you're holding, clutching your purse as I walk by, you're aching. Yeah, that's you're so in, important. You know, you're as much in a prison as I am. Courtney, this therapist that you went to, um, you refer to her as, as Dr. K in the book. It's Dr. Kornfeld. And the way that she got you to the place of being able to access yourself and your thoughts and your feelings um, and your pain, the, one of the first things she had you do was to write down your dreams, your literal dreams uh, that you would have when you slept at night or, or however you interpret it. What was the significance of doing that? Well, the first thing, she asked me how I make decisions. Mm. And, of course, no one had ever, I'm 30 years old, no one has ever asked me. I don't know, I, I flip a coin, and right? That's, isn't that whatever everybody does? And she just quietly listened and said, no, Courtney, you know, that's wonderful for acting. Mm. But in life, it can be devastating. You know, when you don't know what to do, sometimes you, you should probably don't do anything. And she said, Courtney, do you have, and this is over a series of meetings, of course, she said, Courtney, do you have the patience to let the mud settle in the water and the water become clear? Mm. I said, Oh, no, Dr. K, what are you talking about? Don't wait, settle, patience. I got to go, Doc, I got to go. I mean, that's, that's, I'm an achievement-oriented young man at that time. I'm, I, and my achievement and my go, 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 go-ness served me very, very well. Right. And so, but she's just making mental notes and, and then she said, Courtney, because the way we got together was through a dream. The night before I met Dr. Kornfeld, I had a dream and something about a pattern. And, you know, and I went in and I shook uh, Dr. Kornfeld's hand in the hallway. And I knew when I shook her hand. And uh, she's about five feet from the ground. She was short and uh, very motherly. And um, uh, she said, you can, uh, there's a, an office Part of my office to the right, there's a room there, and there was a couch, and on the couch was a pillow or something, and it had the, pretty much the same pattern as the pattern in my dream. Wow. And I said, wow. And I told her, of course, like, you know, about that, and we, you know, I was talking a mile a minute in the session, and she said, Courtney, you don't have to tell me everything today. Just and write it down. Just yeah, slow take down. your time. And yeah. uh, and gradually, you know, we had some more sessions, and she, she said, do you dream? And I said, no. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but I don't remember them. She said, well, I'd like you to get your dreams. Mm. And that's all she said. Well, you, being the overachiever that you are, then set off to be the best dream catcher that you could be. You even started <laughs> taking a class on dreams. But you started to write down your dreams, both your hopes and your dreams, but also your literal dreams that you were having. And what did that exercise do for you? It organized my day. Mm. It centered me. The basis of it was in order to get your dreams, you need simply a notebook, a pen or pencil, and a flashlight. And then when you wake up, write down the first thing 
that comes to your mind. Initially, it's just, you know, whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be a dream, just whatever. You're training your mind to go, where was I? Mm-hmm. And by the third night, uh, they whoosh, they came in, and I was getting five, six, seven, eight, sometimes nine dreams a night, and I would wake up, and uh, I would write down my dreams. And so that first week, I, they started to come in. I went to my session with Dr. K, and I said, um, there you go, 35 dreams. <laughs> She's like, wait a minute, hold said, on. You know Let's... what, you little... So she said, Court, just give me the most powerful one. Every week, this is how we're going to work. What's so powerful, Courtney, about you sharing this story? Hmm. Um, a couple of things. I, I was just thinking about the, the power of you writing your dreams out and, hmm. and then talking about them with someone in a safe space like you, like you describe it. Like all of the answers are inside of you. That's the hmm. first thought mm-hmm. I had. Yes, yes, then, yes. <laughs> yeah, then the second one is... There's such a stigma, and, and Dr. Robin, you can probably speak to this, not a stigma, but maybe a skepticism about therapy overall and actually what happens in therapy, especially for black men. Um, can you kind of talk about that? Because that that's kind of maybe the one, one of the biggest barriers to seeking therapy. Yes. You know, I, when I think of the disservice that that messaging has... Uh, perpetuated in men, and particularly black men, that I don't want anybody to get in my head. Um, I don't want anyone in my business. I don't want anyone messing with my mind. I don't need any of that because I've got this. So all of those messages are conditioned responses to trauma and to dis and misinformation. If you understood that you were whole and whole people need other people who are safe to explore their internal worlds, you wouldn't need the defense that you don't want anyone getting close. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're talking about. And so part of what Dr. Kay did and Courtney said yes to Uh, without even knowing what he was saying yes to, he was becoming familiar with his own inner world. He was becoming familiar with with, himself. Yes, with himself and with the unedited pieces of himself. Because so often, and this is true for all of us, we're trying to gauge how much to say. We're trying to gauge whether or not I will be judged or um, trashed or embraced for this thought. And so Courtney just said with Dr. K, she had no judgment of what he was bringing or not bringing. She set the table and sent an invitation and said, Courtney, please come. And so when you talk about stigma for therapy, you know, that therapy is for white people, for rich people, for sick people, not only is that not true, therapy and what it is, I believe, Tanya, at its best, it's an opportunity to be in a safe space and overhear 
the conversation that you've been having with yourself all of your life, but it's never been safe to listen. Our guest today is award-winning actor Courtney B. Vance and psychologist Dr. Robin Smith. They have a new book out titled The Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Up First achieves the rare one-two punches of being short and thorough, national and international, fact-based and personable. Every morning, we take the three biggest stories of the day and explain why they matter. And we do it all in less than 15 minutes. So you can start your day a little more in the know than when you went to sleep. Listen now to the Up First podcast from NPR. When Argentina won the World Cup, it meant so much to so many people. But there's one person in particular for whom it meant everything. Soccer legend Lionel Messi. In The Last Cup, a bilingual podcast series, I explore why. Listen now to The Last Cup podcast from NPR and Futuro Studios. Here and now. It can be a mantra if you need one. And who doesn't these days? We're a show that gives you fresh perspectives on the biggest stories of the day with real people, all in a half hour. Get your world news all in one place. Just remember the mantra, here and now, anytime. A podcast from NPR and WBUR. Hi, I'm Jen White from 1A, the home of good conversation. But what makes it great are the ideas and insights you bring to the show every day. It seems only fair that when you make room for us, we make room for you. Listen to the 1A podcast from WAMU and NPR. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, here with a secret from our archives. Sometimes during interviews, Terry almost sings. Now, as we'll hear, one of the things you do on this record is your famous, I can't, I can't even imitate this. But you're fa- <laughs> to hear Terry with Ronnie Spector, you'll have to be a Fresh Air Plus supporter. Join for yourself at plus.npr.org. Today I'm talking with actor Courtney B. Vance and psychologist Dr. Robin Smith about their new book, The Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power, which explores the trauma unique to Black men and boys and the urgent need to change the conversation about mental health. Courtney B. Vance is an award-winning actor, known for his roles in The Hunt for Red October, The Preacher's Wife, FX's The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and HBO's Lovecraft Country. Dr. Robin L. Smith is a licensed psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, and talk show host. She's known for her regular appearances as the on-air therapist for The Oprah Winfrey Show. I want to note, if you're in a mental health crisis, help is available. 988 is the number of the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Well, Courtney, do you remember the first time you actually was told or heard man up or boys don't cry or any sort of message that told you sharing your emotion in this way is not what boys do? I don't remember that. Um, You know, I've heard it, but uh, I was a very emotional young child and I had a a older sister two years older and so you know we grew up in a black community and we just played and had fun and you know um, and so I don't I don't remember that you know in the context of that 
I know my father and I only would and could talk about certain things. I knew, you know, you, you know your household, you know what you can ask and what you can't ask. But, you know, my father was always there. I mean, he loved tools. He loved uh, going and fixing the the car. In that context, I knew the tools to be able to hand to him, but I mm. didn't. It wasn't explained to me what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But I knew the hex nut. I knew the the Phillips and the straight. I mean, I knew all the tools. Um, but but feelings. But did no. you talk about feelings? No, no, no. Yeah. That's that's that was, and especially for him because that he didn't have the tools. <laughs> Yeah. He he had the tools. He knew where the tools were at yes. Sears, but he didn't have the life tools. Courtney, I want to talk to you for a moment about intergenerational wounds and how they might show up in the day-to-day. You were actually on PBS's Finding Your Roots a few years ago, and you found out some really interesting things about your family, but what did you find out that helped you understand more about maybe the pain that lived within your father? Well, our, my father's side of the family found us um, in Chicago. And they reached out to my sister and I, and we, my sister and I went to Chicago and met a good portion of our Vance side of the family. And it was very moving, very emotional, very fun, very lively, very, very, just like, you know, ugh. I can't even describe how, you know, we were just, everyone was just giddy. And then, you know, they were just talking, they started talking about, you know, because we never knew who my father's mother was. Um, because he was in foster care. Because he was in foster care. Yeah. Um, so he would never talk about it. My mom said he would never. But, you know, his mother, the family, was telling us that Ardella was her name, and Ardella would periodically, you know, say, little short lady, um, five feet from the ground, like Dr. K. Um, she would say, my boy, where's my boy? Because she was, you know, after the trauma, she they, she was institutionalized and mm-hmm. sent back down to um, uh, Arkansas from Chicago. Where she was from. Where yeah. she was from. She had two boys. And evidently on the birth certificate of her oldest son, Larry, they, they had at back in the day, maybe they still do, I have on the birth certificate, you know, a space for you to put down how many stillbirths you had, mm. uh, how many stillbirths the mother had. And uh, there was a six there. <gasps> and she had Larry when she was 15. Mm. So she had been raped, molested since she was nine. Mm. And so lost her mind. And then had uh, uh, my father two years later at 17 and then you know there was a whole, there's a whole other story around that I'm not going to go into it. Um, but she was saying that the family was telling us that she, periodically she would say they took my boy they took my boy where's my boy where's my and they wouldn't know what she was referring to so they they would just say oh Nana stop now it's okay it's okay but the oldest son Larry was raised by Ardella's sister as her own child, and so he didn't. He was part of the he, right yeah, thing. he didn't find out that that wasn't his mommy until he was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. Wow. Okay, but there was nobody left to take in Conroy. 
And so that he was put in the foster system. And, you know, so I'm sure the shame within the family of what they had done to and, and lost him. He was lost. Um, so my father did his best and did amazingly well, you know, with by being thrown away. But if he had been able to hold on, he would have been with us when we and went to Chicago. He would have found out that information. He would have found out what? that his mommy was looking for him. That his mother actually didn't throw him away, that it was the circumstance. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guests are award-winning actor Courtney B. Vance and licensed psychologist Dr. Robin L. Smith. They've written a new book with writer Sharice Jones titled The Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Some good stories come out of Washington. But most come out of communities like yours, far from the capital. Here and Now, Anytime is a podcast that taps into local newsrooms from Maine to San Diego to bring you stories that matter. Get closer to your community and find common ground with people around the world on Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR. Getting bogged down by how much new music there is out there? There's a lot. Consider a daily dose of the All Songs Considered podcast. It's the easiest way to get tuned into the music world. We spend hours combing through the new music universe, from emerging bands to time-tested icons, to bring you your next favorite artist. To get up on your music know-how, listen to All Songs Considered from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. In the through line of your story, there is this very tragic thing that happens to you as an adult, as a man. But in me putting together you growing up in Detroit, I just want you, if you can just give me just a little bit of a lens on how that invisible ache might have been growing inside of you until this moment that you came to where you felt like you really needed to seek therapy. My family was completely focused on education and achieving, and and that's wonderful. Um, we were in a black environment, uh, 12th Street, Detroit, um, my father was a manager of one of the first supermarkets in uh, Detroit, Bilo. What was it? Bilo. Bilo, okay. And, uh, yeah. and of course, in the 67 riots, they burned it to the ground. And so he had to pivot. And uh, that's when he went to Chrysler, foreman, and you know, elevated to into benefits and, you know, achieving and doing well. And of course, you know, Life happens where all of a sudden you, we've got you this, in this wonderful position, but now we need you, Mr. Conroy Vance, to um, do the dirty work. We need you to fire 3,000 people in this plant, mm-hmm. and then we need you to rehire uh, 3,000 more because uh, we're, we're doing a transition to a new, you know, the business of life, hiring, ruining people's lives. We want you to mm-hmm. to be able to do that. and. And then, you know, after you've done those two things, mm, we may or may not need you anymore. And he got wind of that, that the, just the thinking that you're all of that and you, you're, that you're in the club, you finally made it, and all of a sudden you're not. And realizing that as a, 
uh, a black person that you know and we teach this to our young people that um, you have to be and my father told me he said don't get caught up in you know over there at Harvard uh, those young white kids will cut their hair and then they'll go into their father's businesses um, and you're thinking that you're you're one of them you they'll take care of you or they're you're their buddies and all of a sudden they're gone and you're left with nothing so take care of yourself focus keep working work twice as hard um and and that's 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 a, a message that you know yeah. and you, you then you talk about you know teaching young black boys about how they deal with the police, police yeah. you know that, that those are things that that we internalize and the the high cost of high living or low living is that how do you go back and recover how do you with without knowing about that i even need to talk to somebody mm-hmm. how do you go back and deal with the fact that when we first moved into la Cunada, that the police were outside my house the twins were three sleeping and they put me on my knees in front of the house as i came out the door at midnight looking for a package on the front stoop and, and at this point, you are Courtney B. Vance, Courtney the Vance. accomplished actor. But I'm a black man who doesn't, yeah. you know, the skin color. So, you know, it's, you know, um, you really have to, I mean, I, I read, Tanya, I read biographies a lot. So I, and I read them because I, I want to see how other people tried, failed, succeeded, and do a comparison. How did Lincoln do it? How did Frederick Douglass do it? How did Malcolm X do it? How did MLK do it? And start to get a composite and start to realize that they all were in prep mode for now. That 30 years ago, they were getting ready for when there was they were tapped on the shoulder. At what point do you not realize that you're, as Dr. Robbins says, you're being prepared for greatness? You're in prep mode now. You're studying now for when you're shoulder is tapped. And if you haven't done the work, then the tap is going to move on to someone else's and you'll go a different way. I want to go higher. In order to do that, I've got to go. There's Bishop, our Bishop Blake told us years ago, when we were building the cathedral. There's a mathematical formula for as high as you want a building to go. You have to go a certain amount of feet deep. And if you want to, if you want to later on try to add to the height, you cannot do it. You have to tear that building down and go deeper into the ground. Mm-hmm. So there's, if you want to go higher, you must go deeper. And I want to go higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's going to cost me something. Mm-hmm. Everything is, that's worth doing costs you something. And just because you're, it, it's hard work doesn't mean there's something wrong. It just means it's just work. You got to go through it. Courtney, there are these other ways to access healing. Both you and and Dr. Robin have talked about a couple of them in the book. But I was thinking about acting for you. Um, Because acting does give you access to these emotions. You You have to access these range of emotions in order to emote. Do you see that as a form of therapy in a way? Acting saved my life. I didn't know anything about acting. I was I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I was running track, um, you know, I was a hurdler and and but then I realized I'm not doing what I said I would do, which was meet people. And from meeting people I would find out what I needed to do. And I said, let me do theater and I came back my sophomore year and I started doing plays. And uh after my second play, um I my aunt said, You could do this, Courtney and so 
and but acting was was voices for me. It was just I thought it was that's what I thought it was. And then I did a, a like impersonations, impersonations almost, and just yeah. you know, and my voice was, you know, I had a wonderful voice, blessed. But uh, while I was doing a, one of the plays at the main stage uh, called Lulu with uh, Lee Brewer's Lulu with Kathy Slade and others, and Kathy said, Courtney, you should go to you know reach out to Tina Packard Shakespeare and Company, and they have. Ford Foundation scholarships, and you get free classwork for cleaning the grounds. And I said, really? So I went up there, auditioned at Edith Wharton's estate, and I got it. And I told my girlfriend at the time, and she got in, and we went up there. And and so we, we, you know, I'm still with the voices thing. And so 15 or 16 of our apprentices were, you know, around, and we were, you know, one evening all the company got together. And Tina said, all right, she's English, she said, all right, people, the apprentices gather, and I want you to all come up on the stage, and one by one come up, and I want you to tell us two things about yourself you want us to know. And we were all like, oh, that's very cool, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. And then she said, and so we thought she was done, she said, and I'd like you to tell us then two things you don't want us to know about yourself. Mm. And I said, what am I, wait, 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 what am I, it's not, what is, this is not acting, this is, this is too much for me. And so, this yeah. is something I couldn't figure out. And I, it drove me, you know, it, it, a shifting was happening. If I wanted to do this acting thing, I had to shift my mind. There was one night, I just couldn't do it, Tanya, I couldn't figure it out, I couldn't, and I had to, I had to go out on the road and scream. And we were in the, the woods, at the mount, and we were just deep in the woods, and I'm afraid of the dark. I conquered my fear, came outside, and felt my way, you know, the quarter a mile, half mile to the road, and ran down a mile down the road, got a stop sign, and shook it from its, and shook it down. I was so, and I screamed, you know, and so I said, oh, okay, I'm better now, I'm better now. So I oh, came I back. That felt good. I felt, 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 felt good. I came back to the, you know, to the woods and felt my way back into the, to the mount and to, to the you know, the stables where we were staying and went to sleep. Got up the next morning. We were down in the the dance studio where we do our our warm ups with our our voice teacher. Hum, I do all of our touching sound as we called it. And you know, as I was laying there touching sound, I overheard somebody. You know, a couple of my apprentices saying. Did you hear that last night? Did you hear that moose out there scream? You heard it was that? you. It was me, and I was it like, was you. "Oh my goodness, they heard yeah. me!" So you know, I had to, sh- I had to shake myself and get into another head. And that once I made that transition there, the next summer we were doing the, the balcony scene of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, oh, blessed, blessed night! All this is but a dream too flattering sweet to be substantial. As I'm saying the lines, it all rushed, the emotion came through me on the line, and everyone went, something just happened. Something Mm -hmm. just happened. Courtney, what? And I was like, it just, I got what they were saying. The acting thing began for me when that, that, but it was a shifting of the head, and that's what is hard for all of us to do, is to get our minds around a different thing. And what does it take for us to make that shift in our thinking in order for the emotion to come through? Dr. Robin and Courtney, there is a final message in the book that I keep thinking about. And um, it's, it's the list of questions that you're asking the reader to ask themselves. Courtney, would you mind reading 
Where does it hurt? What do I tell myself about me? Whose voice do I hear? Who is the real me? Dr. Robin, these are important questions you feel like every black man should should ask himself. Yes, and should ask his son, his Mm -hmm. daughter, but it has to start with the self. Yes, those are the essential questions that call you into this moment. One of the things Courtney and I say about the invisible ache is that It's like an old-fashioned altar call where we are inviting all black boys and men and those who love them to come on down, to come to the forefront of their lives. Dr. Robin Smith and Courtney B. Vance, thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Tanya, so much. Thank you for setting the table. Courtney B. Vance and Dr. Robin Smith co-authored the book, The Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power. Coming up, Kevin Whitehead reviews a new album from jazz pianist Angelica Sanchez. This is Fresh Air. Here and Now, Anytime is a show that helps you make sense of the news. We're not about clickbait headlines or salacious soundbites. And in 20 to 30 minutes every afternoon, we'll make you an expert on your world ease into your evening with a steadier, calmer lens on the news. Listen to Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR, wherever you get your podcasts. The economy can sometimes feel like a big, scary wilderness filled with jargon and unreadable charts. The Planet Money podcast is here to help. We love spreadsheets. Yeah, let us be your guide to the global economy. We brought snacks. Is that trail mix? It's actually gork. That's Planet Money from NPR. In need of a good read or just want to keep up with the books everyone's talking about, NPR's Book of the Day podcast gives you today's very best writing in a pocket-sized show. Whether you're looking to engage with the big questions of our times or temporarily escape from them, we've got an author who'll speak to you. Catch today's great books in 15 minutes or less on the Book of the Day podcast only from NPR. Jazz pianist Angelica Sanchez, originally from Arizona, moved to New York almost three decades ago. The many band leaders she's worked with include horn players Wadada Leo Smith, Rob Mazurek, and Tony Malaby. Last year, Sanchez started teaching at Bard College and now spends time living and listening out in the woods. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead reviews her new album for nine players called Nighttime Creatures. Angelica Sanchez says the sounds of the pitch-dark woods at night spark her musical imagination. Out there, you can hear large and small critters with their repetitive calls and sudden squabbles, and maybe hear the rustle of leaves as a breeze picks up. Sanchez abstracts from all that in music for nine instruments that variously contrast, blend, or clash, music where prevailing winds and air pressure can change quickly. 
This is from the title track to Sanchez's Nighttime Creatures, a term that also describes jazz musicians. Sanchez's five-piece horn section, both brass instruments are pitched in the same range, Kenny Warren's cornet and Thomas Heberer's quarter-tone trumpet. Alto saxist Michael Atias is well-matched with Chris Speed on tenor, who gets a lighter tone on the bigger horn. And then Ben Goldberg's giant, grumbly contra-alto clarinet stomps in, straddling horn and rhythm sections like a colossus. Mid-sized jazz groups like this nonet may behave like little big bands with scripted dialogues between brass and saxes. But Sanchez and company don't always aim for crisp big band articulation. As conductor and composer Butch Morris would advise writers of tidy music, spill a little gravy on the tablecloth. As a sound painter, Angelica Sanchez may contrast elegant design with dabs of runny color. There's a striking episode on Astral Light of Alarid, where the harmony turns deliberately sour. Thomas Heberer's quarter-tone trumpet digs into microtonal cracks between the other horns. But while the winds get smeary, the rhythm quartet tightens up. Angelica Sanchez's nine-piece band sounds smoothest on the 1947 pastoral Lady of the Lavender Mist. It's by Duke Ellington, who'd showed the way by populating his band with contrasting soloists who could meld and phrase as one. Duke also wrote pieces audibly inspired by the natural world, although he usually observed it from a moving vehicle.
I love how the background horns create an aura behind that trumpet melody. You get a sense of sonic depth, foreground versus background. That sort of spatial awareness is another thing one might cultivate in the woods at night, where the same animal cry can be charming or alarming depending on distance. For open-eared composer Angelica Sanchez, such encounters set the mind buzzing. On nighttime creatures, she bottles that open-air feeling and brings it into the studio. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book, Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film, Why Jazz and New Dutch Swing. He reviewed Nighttime Creatures by jazz pianist Angelica Sanchez. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, China's President Xi Jinping has become more hostile to the U.S., more friendly with Vladimir Putin, and has reversed China's course from progress to stagnation. We talk with New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos about what this means for China and the U.S. I hope you'll join us. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. I'm Peter Sagal. NPR is very serious, mostly. It treats newsmakers with all due respect, almost all the time. It brings you the most important information about the issues that really matter, usually. And it never asks famous people about things they don't know anything about, except once in a while. Join us for the great exception. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the news quiz from NPR. By the time your evening commute rolls around, or maybe your afternoon stroll, you've already got the headlines. So let your mind wander away from the front page with Here and Now Anytime, a podcast from NPR and WBUR. We'll keep you up to speed on the stories that matter and introduce you to people living the news, not just commenting on it. It's Here and Now Anytime.